0: Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. Well, good morning, Hope Church. How are you today? Awesome. Happy Father's Day, everyone. Uh, Standing in the back today, uh, being able to hear people sing was just uh, really, really awesome. Uh, it's great to kind of get back into the rhythm here at the church. Uh, my name is Tom. I'm the lead pastor. For all of you who are watching online as well, we welcome you uh, here today. Uh, we know that all of you could have been doing something different this morning, but you chose to be here, which is really, really cool. Uh, so listen, we have started a, a, a series a few weeks ago called Supreme. And uh, the couple of things uh, we are want, I want you to know is if you have a Bible... You could bring it to church. That is still okay. Now, you might have it on your on your phone or whatever, uh, and that's great. Maybe you're watching online and you have one laying around. I would love for you to follow along uh, with us because one of the things that we wanted to do, this is a little bit different series for us, uh, but we want to get people familiar with what's going on in God's Word, and uh, this is a great way to kind of start getting familiar with that if you're not. So definitely do that. Uh, the other thing, I'm just going to echo what our host said and move on real quick quickly, you should download our app. Just go to the app store of your choice and uh, find that church center app. And then once you download that, find Hope Church. Uh, It's a search. And then you will be up to date and you could stay connected with everything we're doing, including following along online. Now again, today we're all going to have everything on the screen, so you're going to be able to see that as well, but just wanted to encourage you uh, with that. So we have started this new uh, series a few weeks ago called Supreme, and we've been studying the book of Colossians, right? And so we started, we got into that a little bit. This was a book written uh, to a church that was very diverse verse. Um, and it was a culture that prided itself on intellectualism and ideas and philosophy and enlightenment. And we're going to talk about all of that in a little bit. Uh, but Paul was admonishing this church to be careful. Now again, I'm going to get to that in a second. Before I do, I want to do a quick review. So we're all starting at the same place. Is that cool with you? Alright, so listen, this is what we're going to do I'm going to put up uh, this first one I just want to talk about the Bible here So here we have the Old and the New Testament There's a total of how many books? 66 66. How many are in the Old Testament? And how many are in the New Testament? 27, 27. good Now we're going to find the book of Colossians in the New Testament Under the section called Letters Alright, and who wrote the book of Colossians? Anybody know? Paul. Yeah, and I said, listen, if anybody asks you who wrote a certain book of the New Testament, just say Paul, because 50% of the time, you're going to be right, okay? So here we have uh, how it's laid out in the Bible. Next slide is a map of the world at that time, and we find uh, Colossae over there, which is why it's called Colossians, Um, and you can see it kind of in relation uh, to the other uh, parts of the world. Now, this is modern-day Turkey, all right, so it kind of gives you a sense of what part of the world we're talking about here. A very, very interesting uh, thing that Paul is doing writing this book to Colossians. A few interesting things about it. And I mentioned Colossi was not really anything big or special. In fact, it was a very small town with not a whole lot that it was known for. It was known for producing black wool. And it was about 100 miles from Ephesus. Ephesus was like the big port city where everything was happening. It's like New York City is what I said. And what's interesting about that is we are almost exactly 100 miles from New York City. And so East Hampton is a really cool uh, connection point to this church. It's very, very similar. Not a whole lot going on here. We're known for making bells, right? Uh, So it's kind of that same there. So the question I have is, why in the world is Paul writing to this little tiny church? Now, he was in prison, too. And the other thing uh, that most scholars agree on is that Paul never visited there. He never met the people there. He never went there in person. So again, for me, this is the kind of stuff when we start to study the Bible, like I'm leaning in now. What is going on and why is this book so important? And so he begins to uh, admonish this church. And that's the thing. He's not coming down on them, but he's got these kind of these strong words. He's like, okay, listen up. I really need you to know a couple things here. And he begins to admonish them to not get caught up in all of the ideas, in all of the philosophies, in all of the distractions, all of the noise uh, that they could easily get caught up in. Instead, keep the main thing supreme. Or rather the main person supreme, and that's Jesus. So uh, we talked about the definition, and here's a definition that we said, supreme. The highest rank or authority, the highest in degree or quality, ultimate, final. And that comes from the Latin word super, which just means above everything. So he's saying Jesus, the Christ, needs to be above everything in your life. And you say, well, what does that mean? I'm not even sure I'm tracking with you. Well, that's what we're talking about, uh, again, as we pursue today and, and a couple messages to follow as well. There are four chapters in this little book. There are a total of 95 verses, and 72 of them mention or refer to Jesus. So let's kind of lean in and see uh, what we have today. Uh, we talked about two themes, major themes. The first one I already mentioned. What's the first one? Does anybody remember? Jesus is supreme. That's the first one. We took our main verse, Colossians 118, and says, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Then we had a second theme. Does anybody remember that? No. I didn't expect. That's okay. That's why we're doing this again. Maturity in Christ. That's the second main theme of this book. We take that from Colossians 1:28. I talked about this. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing. There's our word again. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present, um, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Some of your Bibles might say complete, but it's the idea of coming to maturity in Christ. And I said, and this was not original to me, but the truth is that we give power what we pay attention to, right? And so the question is, are we giving Jesus the attention we deserved? Does he have the highest rank and authority in our lives? Does he have the ultimate and final decisions for the things that we're going through and that we're deciding in our lives? Is he preeminent? Is he above all? Is he supreme. And so from there, we have this book really, really profound that Paul is writing. So he's encouraging people that their walk would be more steadfast and more secure and more grounded and to help them discern the noise, which leads us to today, which I'm calling the surety of Jesus. From the earliest of time, humankind has asked several questions. Things like, who am I? What am I doing here? Where am I going? These deep, meta, philosophical questions. I kind of touched on this a couple weeks ago when I said, why are you here? Right, And that's kind of what I was touching on. What are the, what is the, bigger, the bigger things happening? See, these questions, I think, are baked into us from birth. Right from the beginning. We can't help but ask these kind of questions. They're in the very fibers of our being. Why? Well, because deep down, I think we all have an understanding that life matters. That our lives matter that our lives need to matter. And so we believe in purpose, right? We believe that every life has a purpose. I believe that my life has a purpose. I believe that your life has a purpose. And here's the thing. I need this purpose to be bigger than me. I need it to be bigger than me. Otherwise, again, what's the point? Otherwise, it may not be a purpose worth living for, right? You need a purpose that's bigger than you because you need a purpose that's worth dying for. And deep down, you know this. You, you all know this. That's why you feel good when you're able to do something or contribute to something that seems to be beyond you, that seems to be contributing to the greater, the bigger need. So even right now, in 2021, in our culture and in our world, It's no different. Just like he was writing to them, he's thinking, he's saying, keep this thing really important. He's saying nothing different to us right now. Every person, that time and now, is searching for meaning and purpose. Everyone is looking to be loved, to be valued, to be accepted. Every person wants to be challenged and I think can be challenged to make the world a better place. And at the same time, I think we begin as we kind of ponder this thing and we kind of get to that level, we start to think, well, what, what, is, what is value? What, what has that value to me? What, what is, am I going to place that value on? And so we realize that the true definition of value is what we ascribe Value to. Right? When you think about the value of something, what is it that gives it value? What's the price someone's willing to pay for it, right? I I listed something on uh, Facebook Marketplace. Anybody use Facebook Marketplace ever? Okay, so I listed something about three weeks ago on Facebook Marketplace. This was uh, something that was cost $300 originally. We used it one time. It's like new condition. And so I'm like, you know what? I listed on Facebook Marketplace. We don't have a need for it anymore. I'm going to list it for $160. You know, it's kind of just above half of what what it was. Surely someone will buy it. (laughs) Well, guess what? Yeah. Three weeks later, I've dropped the price already twice. No one's looking at it. Why? Because no one's assigning the value to it that maybe I think it ought to have. And that's where kind of value starts, right? So when we go through life, we come to these these things where we think about what is value, what is my life, what am I doing with it, what is the meaning, the purpose, the value? It's why inevitably... When rich people get to the end of their life, they start to say things like, man, I wish I spent a little less time at work and maybe a little more time with family. Inevitably. It's why you hear stories of families who have this maybe this moment of clarity and said, you know, we're done kind of going down the spiral. And so you know what? We're going to kind of sell off what we can, and we're going to go, and we're going to start going around the country and and make memories. Actually, we know a family in Hope Church that's doing that right now. If you're watching, hello from wherever you are. But that's why we pursue things like that. It's why we go, we give money to certain organizations, or we go and serve in different places of the world on the front lines meeting deep needs like building wells or caring for refugees or fighting for equality and justice and the dignity of all people. And here in Colossians, Paul begins to touch on this. He's admonishing, again, there's our word, the church to protect the value of what they received. Jesus himself and the full life that he gives to all people. But today we're going to discover a little bit of a problem. And we're going to find uh, the problem in our key passage today, Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to read two verses, verse 4 and verse 8. So if you want to get there, you want to pull it up on your phone, it will be up on the screen as well. Um. That word admonish, I want to go back to that really quick. Uh, That's a really interesting thing, and I think it's going to come into play in just a couple minutes of what I talk about. Uh, It it simply means, like the the word that that's translated here in the scripture, it simply means out of joint, which seems kind of crazy. Um, The other day, I had an MRI on my shoulder. I, uh, I think I did something to my shoulder. Something is definitely wrong. I've been in a lot of pain with that. So I don't know if I've tore something or whatever it is. But obviously, it's hindering me in what I need to do. It's not, it's, um, I'm, I'm favoring, you know, one side of my body over the other. It's, it's affecting my sleep, whatever. And I think it's a really interesting word when we start to think about what we're going to read about here in a second. But let me get to one of the problems. Colossians 2, verse 4 says this. Paul says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you, trick you, confuse you, by fine-sounding arguments. Now, my Bible says persuasive. So he's saying, beware. Don't get tricked. Don't be perceived. You say, by what? Well, verse 8 tells us. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He says, be careful. If we don't understand, now listen to me, the real Jesus will easily be led astray. If we don't come to grips with the essentials of our faith... If we don't truly dig in and understand who Jesus was, why he came to the earth, we are sitting ducks that are going to be tossed to and fro. Because there's a lot of stuff that sounds good. How, do we, how are we going to know? I'm going to skip over to another passage in the Bible because I found this really interesting. This is also written by Paul. It's written actually to that Ephesus church. Uh, Ephesus was that big city. This is a different book of the Bible, but this is what he says. He, re- he, he writes this to them. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, there's our word again, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? We talked about this maturity process from being a small baby to being a toddler to being a teenager to being a young adult, whatever. We talked about all that tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the whole truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. He's using the same language that he does in Colossians, the body and the head, right? From him, the whole body joined together. Now, there's our word admonish, right? It's that something's out of joint. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So he's saying, hey, listen, you want to be mature in Christ. There are some things that you're going to need to work at. There's some things you're going to need to mature in. There's some things you're going to need to dig in about. So Paul is writing this to, this to these churches, I should say, at this time. Because this was a culture obsessed with new ideas and different religions and different ideologies and different philosophies. They were asking the same kind of questions That we're asking today, why am I here? What am I doing here? Where am I going? And so they begin to explore all these kind of new things, this new kind of wisdom. And he says, be careful. He's admonishing. He's doing it in a nice way. He says, be careful, though. You can easily, if you don't know, be taken away, tossed about. Philosophy, uh, I mean, what are some of the things that they were they were wrestling with in those days? And by the way, I said he wrote this book to that specific group of people in that specific time, in that specific day and age, right? It might not be all of the things that we have today, but it is, you know, not necessarily written to us, but it is written for us. So there's things that we could pull from that. So we talked about this group a few weeks ago called the Gnostics. Do you remember that? Uh, Gnosticism, G-N-O-S. And it means uh, knowledge, really. Um, and they believed that they could find their way to God, or they had this kind of special in with Jesus as they received secret knowledge. As they were able to come in a place where they were to receive, like, these secret things that only they could know. Gnosticism. And again, we're not digging into that and, you know, ripping that apart and figuring out what that, that, that's not the point of today. But that's one of the things that was kind of in our, that culture and kind of creeping into the church. Another thing um, that was going on, so we read that verse and it says the elementary uh, principles. It says, um, uh, see that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Lots of debate between all the theologians of what that might mean, these elemental philosophies or these elemental principles. And I'm not saying I have this right, but the thing that makes the most sense to me is when you look back at that, that language, it means uh, the words are used there as things that are in a row, right? And so the thing that makes the most logical sense to me that some scholars would say is that there was definitely this this uh, this pull towards astrology, right? The planets lining up in just the right way so that we can kind of divine our future. So astrology was a big piece of the things that was going on and things that people were playing with and wrestling with and how true that was and how it was not. There was also another group of people. Um, these were people, uh, a lot of people called them the Essenes. These were, these were um, Jewish people that were really, really steeped in Jewish tradition. And it kind of became this thing where um, they... Uh, it, it was asceticism, right? And if you're not sure what asceticism is, it's just like holding back from anything good. So they would see, like, food there that was really good, like steak and ice cream for us, right? And be like, no, nope, I'm going to abstain from that because I want to be as pure as possible. I want to be as holy and as pious as possible. I am not going to eat anything that's good for me. And in fact, that's why I'm going to wear these tattered rags, Because I don't want to draw any attention to myself, because I want to be holy. I want to be right. I want to stay so far away. So, these were some of the things that the church was going through at the time, that the church was seeing, that the culture was experiencing. And Paul says, whatever the case, be careful, because you're kind of retreating to that infancy stage again. This false teaching is going to take you captive. And I like what N.T. Wright says about false teaching. He says, they're always close enough to be respectable. And yet far enough away to cause utter destruction. Isn't that so true? When we come upon new ideas and new ideologies and new philosophies, and like I said last time, we're not really sure what's what we believe or what's right and how do we know that. And, all, and it, you know, a lot of times it's because it's so close. And yet it's so far because it can be just so destructive to our faith, right? He's saying, be careful. We encounter false religions, false teachings every day, false ideas, and we will fall for it unless we know the truth of Jesus. Uh, There's something called uh, counterfeit detection. I believe this is a division of the Secret Service. And I did a little bit of my research uh, this week on this, um, and it's this—it's a group. It's a—it's a group of people, a specialized group of people that uh, they specialize in identifying counterfeit currency. Um, and uh, so, I found this article from the Washington Post in 2016. And it was talking, again, at the time, uh, this group, this counterfeit detection, uh, had just seized the largest amount of money that they had ever seized up until that point. And again, I don't know if since then there's been a larger seizure, but um, they had seized $30 million of counterfeit money at the border. And so uh, they were talking about, you know, how do they even go through that? So I found some of the things, random facts that are interesting, because if you know me, I love random facts. Uh, 60% of the world's counterfeit money um, comes from Peru. And um, what makes it so hard to detect and what makes it really different there is they don't use any kind of uh, really electronic, as far as I could understand, electronic equipment. Because if you guys, I guess if you use like laser printers, kind of much easier to detect. But they have like, they said, 10 to 12 different people that this counterfeit money will pass through that all have different jobs. So you have like Artisans and um, uh, special like cutters, which I think is one of the biggest, you know, uh, differentiators with a bill, and and, and financiers and printers and all and designers and all these different people It go through all these hands. And so again, this article was talking about you know how they had done this and it's a problem and whatever. Um, and so they said to this counterfeit detection agency, so you know, how do you how do you stop it? How do you know? And they're like, well, we have four rules that we basically go through. You touch it, you tilt it, you look at it, and you look through it. And I thought that was fascinating. But here's here's the kicker. Because I had always heard this, but I wasn't sure if it was true, so I did my own research. Counterfeit detection agency doesn't spend their time studying counterfeit money. Do You realize that? They spend their time studying the real thing, the genuine bill. So even so, it appears maybe it's so close. And that's the thing. Like, all this money every year gets through the system because it's so close. But when they find, they get a lead, they get it, they touch it, they feel it, they tilt it, they look through it, they look at it. They know how to detect the counterfeit. And I find it fascinating, and it's a fascinating example for what we're talking about today. We'll fall for it if we don't know the real truth about the real Jesus. And so that leads me to my big idea today, and it's this. And if you're taking notes, write it down. Maturity in Christ necessitates that we understand what makes the way of Jesus different from the counterfeits. Maturity in Christ necessitates that we understand what makes the way of Jesus different from the counterfeits. So one of the problems uh, that people have, maybe you have, with Christianity in our culture and in this time is what I would say is the narrowness of Christianity. I'm going to stop and pause real quick. I realize, and I said this from the outset, that no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I think there's stuff that's going to be for you through this whole series, right? So I realize in this room we have people who have been following Jesus who would call themselves Christians for a really, really long time. There's some really important things for us to learn today together. At the same time, I am certain that there are people in this room who are watching online online that aren't there yet. They might have real, real doubts and real skepticism about God, Christianity, the church. And I want you to know that Hope Church is for you. This is a place for you. We love that we have that same diversity in this audience. But I think when we start talking about how we, how we deal with our faith and how we deal with truth in our culture, one of the things that we're going to run into over and over again is that Christianity is just so narrow, kind of closed-minded. I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Because the issue is, I think, for a lot of us, it feels like we're excluding people, right? Right? Now, understandably, and I, I totally get this, and I feel the tension in my own life that we don't want to offend people from other religions or other cultures or other faith backgrounds. And so I think one of the common faults, and you could agree or disagree, that's whatever, but I think one of the things that we do is then we kind of default to this thinking that I would call pluralism. And what that simply means is there are lots of ways... To God. As long as we can get there somehow, there's probably a lot of different paths and a lot of different ways to God. And this is certainly attention. And I don't know if I'm just speaking to myself, but I I feel that. And so for people that feel that, I get it. And in my humanness, I'm even tempted. In this kind of thinking. I was reading an article recently about um, uh, someone who asserted, and I think rightly, uh, that there are three main reasons that we tend to think as a culture and as people towards religious pluralism, pluralism, okay? He says um, one of the reasons why we default that way is because it feels like it's a more enlightened approach. We feel like it's a more humble approach and we feel like it's a more tolerant approach. Would you agree? I know I do. Again, you might need to let some of this simmer, but we hear these words all of the time in our day and in our culture. And so the author says that we end up basing a theological decision on our social experience. And I've had to think about this, and I think I agree with what they're saying. And I think Paul, in the book of Colossians, is touching on this very thing. He's admonishing everyone that he's writing to, his crowd. So it's happening back in his day, maybe in different forms, maybe in different ways, the same way, the same tensions that we're experiencing today in our day, in our culture. So, a couple things I think here that I want us to at least think through. And that's what I'm doing. I'm laying it out for us to think through. First of all, the truth is all people, Christians, first and foremost, should be enlightened, humble, and tolerant of all people. I can't overstate that. Christians, of all people, should be the most enlightened, the most humble, and the most tolerant of all people, no matter. But to take vastly different religions and ideologies and philosophies and structures of the religion and paths to God and definitions of God, even, is probably offensive to all religions, Have you thought about that? In other words, we can't lump them all together in the name of tolerance and enlightenment because we're bound to offend if we do that. Stephen Prothero, he's a Boston College professor. He wrote a book, God Is Not One, and he says this, It's comforting to pretend that the great religions make up one big happy family. But this sentiment, however well-intentioned, is neither accurate nor ethically responsible. God is not one. So truth, by definition, is narrow. Truth, by definition, is narrow. Not everyone can be right. It's why I even struggle, and again, you can have your own feelings on this, but when people say, this is my truth. well, We need to be careful when we say things like that. Sure, sure, on some some level, some of that can be accurate. But when we're talking about foundational truths, there is not many truths. There's one truth. And the Bible says over and over again, Jesus calls himself, I'm the way and the truth and have all the fullness of life. So what are the things that are distinctive to Christianity then? What would I say? Now again, I'm, I'm scared to say this part maybe the most because the, the theologians, theologians listening or in this room could be critical of this, but I'm going to just kind of boil it down to some, what I would say, three things. There may be more. But three things that set apart Christianity, that make Christianity unique, that is going to force everybody in this room to come to a point of decision of whether they believe it's true. But here's what I believe is true and what the Bible teaches that is unique to Christianity. Here's the first thing. God did something for us. We don't have to do something for him. He freely gives something up for us. Most every other religion says we need to go and do something to become holier, to become better, to go towards God. We have to work our way towards divinity. But the difference with Christianity is that God did something already for us. That's a distinctive, and it's unique to Christians. The second thing I would say Christianity is about relationship, not rules. Counter to a lot, what a lot of people think, right? We know this. We think it's just this thing or, or we hear all the time it's just a whole bunch of rules I have to follow and I don't know if I could do that. Well, listen, ultimately God wants relationship with all people. And it sets every other religion apart because every other religion counts on something you have to do. There actually are rules. There are paths to take. There are things to recite. There are steps to take. And Jesus says, just come to me. I'll give you rest. I've already done it all. And I would say the third and final and most important thing is that we serve a God that is not dead. He's alive. Right? Every other religion or everybody else that founded a religion has died or will die. But the whole Christian faith relies on one thing, and that is that Jesus is alive. And he has power today, just as he has had from times and ages past, and he will have it forever. And those are the three distinctives of Christianity. There may be more, I'll give you that. But those are rock Solid that I'm putting my faith in because listen, I'm going to say this everyone is putting their faith in something Even if you say you're not even if you would call yourself an atheist You're putting faith in something You're trusting in something My goal today is not to convince you my goal today is, is not to, it's to make us think, why are we here? What are we doing? Where are we going? I acknowledge that all of us are in different places of our spiritual journey. I think Paul was too. That's why he's admonishing this church. Be careful. Be careful. can be so close, but be careful. And how do you do that? Just just know the real Jesus. So as a skeptic, the question that I begin to ask at this point, and maybe some of you are asking, is this. How do I move forward then, as a Christian, as curious and open-minded, but still grounded and secure in my faith. How do I do that? How do I move forward in love and with tolerance while at the same time being thoughtful and wise in the way I live, in the way I interact with other people? How do I move forward filled with humility while still holding firm to my beliefs. How do we do that? We're going to find out next time, hopefully. That's what we'll talk about. In the meantime, I've, ta- I've said from the beginning, it's not enough to just come here and sit and to listen. and to, oh, That was nice. We want you to take some action steps. And here are a couple things that I thought of for this week for you to think about. I'm sure I've given you a lot to think about anyway. I could see my email box is filling up already. I'm asking you to read and study the Bible for yourself. We, if, you're, if you're relying on Sunday mornings to do it for you, you're going to be in trouble. That's not, it can't end there. It can't, it'll start here. I want to start conversations. I know Carrie feels the same way. We're going to start conversations here. We're going to feel those tensions, and we're going to walk in them, and we have to live them out, and we have to walk them out, and we have to talk them out, and we have to look up and figure out exactly where we are. So I want you to start there. If you need help, let me know. I've encouraged us actually from the beginning to start. Just read the Bible. I'm reading it through, halfway through, keeping pace. Hopefully some of you are. The second thing I'm going to say is this. Get in conversations. Do not be shy about conversations with people who believe something different than you. You have to do this. How how, Again, I don't understand church people that want to just keep hanging out with church people. We can't do that. We need to get in our neighborhoods. We need to get around our family. We need to have conversations that deeply matter because everyone's asking this this question of purpose. And these why's it out. Listen. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's for next time. Let's pray. God, I'm I'm grateful for the truth of your word. I'm I'm thankful for this book. Yeah, it's kind of different from what we normally do, but God, uh, it's so it's so rich and full of life. And I I see so many similarities, God, between what Paul was talking about in his day and his culture and his time, and what we are experiencing in our day and in our culture and in our time. And God, I pray for wisdom. I pray for humility. I pray for love. God, I pray for understanding. God, you say in your word that if we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be opened. So God, for those who are seeking, for those who are trying to figure this thing out, for all of us who are still seeking, Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to rely on you, you alone. And give us faith pointed in the right direction, God. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I, thank, I pray that we would not just come here and get some kind of a, a, a booster shot on, on a Sunday morning, God, but that we would take it out into our neighborhoods, onto our street, into our families. God, that we would give you the time that you deserve. Thank you for this time. I know Brandy's going to close us in a second, but I just want to encourage you. Maybe you want to be prayed for today. Maybe God's speaking to your heart about something. We are going to have some people here in the front who will be willing to pray for you after the service. Um, just feel free to take advantage of that. God, we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.